but you really don't like it. So if you don't raise your hand, I really urge you this week to pray before God <laughs> and ask him perhaps to open your eyes and maybe you're the kind of person that has to have everything your way. And if that's true, all the time of you, I'd encourage you, there might be some other Christian graces you want to grow in and accept in the grace of being right. Now, obviously, I'm joking, but we all know there are people that are out there in the world that are always right, that never bend, that never budge. The Christian life, much of it involves accepting there's things we don't like, but in love, we're going to patiently bear with one another. Okay? And that involves church conflicts. Now, again, it might be a serious matter, and the decisions that were made were wrong, and we cannot in good conscience remain in a denomination that has taken the bad stand, right? But a lot of times, this stuff doesn't have to do with that. It has to do with personalities. It has to do with style and lifestyle and pride and all these other things. And this provision ensures that it gives us a safeguard that if those kinds of things are happening, we can at least try to address them before they exit the door. Right, so uh, basically what it says, before calling a congregational meeting for the purpose of taking any action regarding the withdrawal from the OPC, the session shall inform the presbytery ordinarily at a stated meeting, right, when everybody can hear it, of its intention to call such a meeting and shall provide the grounds for its intention. So in other words, what this is saying is, before you call a meeting to vote on whether you're going to withdraw from the OPC, Session needs to write the presbytery and say, hey, this, we're at the point we think we're going to leave. And we need to notify you of that. And before we have the meeting, before we bring it to our congregation, we're telling you. And these are the reasons why we're leaving. So it's all got to be laid out there. These are our reasons. You don't leave without reasons. You state your reasons. Well, then what happens? Well, the presbytery, through representatives appointed for the purpose, they establish a committee shall seek within a period not to exceed three weeks after the presbytery meeting in writing and in person to dissuade the session from its intention. So we call this, the name it gets is a committee to dissuade. So in other words, we, the presbytery appoints a committee, usually like three or four or five men. Three men is usually the average. And they go to that church and they talk to them about the reasons they're given. They talk to them about why they're withdrawn. And they try to persuade them, and this is important, they have to try to persuade them not to leave. <laughs> That's their job. They shouldn't go there and say, yeah, yeah, you're right, go ahead and leave us. Right? They should try to dissuade them of that and give the reasons why they should stay. Okay? After that, if the session is not dissuaded, it may issue a written call for the first meeting of the congregation, and the call shall contain the session's recommendation with its written grounds, together with the presbytery's written argument. So what's this ensure? This ensures that whenever this is set before the congregation, the elders can give their reasons in that church why they want to leave, but then the presbytery also sets its reasons before the congregation. So the congregation has to weigh both sides. Right? Now, again, the process affirms that there may be legitimate reasons why you're leaving, but it also recognizes there may not. And it, it assures us that a proper process in which the people hear everybody's voice to make a sound decision. Why is that? Well, because if you have a session, especially if it's a small session, and they just decide to leave for bad reasons, they can't just take the church out against the will of the congregation, right? Everybody has to be in one accord. Now, if they all vote, okay, um, then they may withdraw, but those that wish to desire to be those that want to desire to be members of the OPC will be put on the rolls of the church. So those that want to stay can stay, and those that want to leave can leave. So the OPC doesn't force churches to stay. Right? And again, sometimes members of churches, they just don't want to stay. Right? Now, there's, there's a sense in which that's not in, in good order to just say, I want to leave. But we can't force people to stay. We can't force churches to stay. And we don't punish churches and people for leaving. Now, there's a good reason for this in terms of our history. Because when churches in the past sought to withdraw from the OPC, uh, back in those days, the building and the property was held by the denomination. What's that? You said the OPC, the PC, USA. When the OPC withdrew from the PCUSA. Yeah, that's what I meant. I don't even remember what I said. 
but is that clear? So when the OPC was first formed out of the PCUSA, the PCUSA essentially took these churches to court to take their property and won most of the cases, except for a handful. Right? We're recognizing, yeah, there may be times when uh, you, you want to go, but you've got to follow the right process, give us a chance to work this out, and if you decide you're going to go, you're free to go. Yes? So uh, the church decides to go. It's good order. Everyone here is like the argument. You see the church still involved again, and they decide to leave. But the, the few, if there are some that say, I want to stay OPC, then you're saying, their membership gets transferred to a neighboring church, and the building and stuff goes with the group that yeah. the majority. So yeah, the, the church would keep its property yeah. unless for some reason the property was owned by the presbytery, which is uncommon. It's usually owned by the congregation. Um, and then anybody who wants to remain in the OPC would be brought on the rolls of the regional church. And then the regional church, the presbytery, would probably appoint a committee or communicate with them and encourage them, here's where you can go now. Whether it's an OPC church close enough to make it work or another reformed church that's there. If there's enough there that they want to start a new church, that can happen too. But the idea is, if it gets to that point, everybody's got a chance to go where they want to go. Right? We don't force them. We persuade and we dissuade, but we don't threaten and we don't punish, right? And we don't do anything directly or indirect, indirectly punitive. But again, note the concern to follow good order, Matthew 18. Everything's got to be laid out on the table. Uh, for all to see, okay? Um, yeah, and I think the other thing about a committee to dissuade is it's not a judicial committee. This sometimes happens where, say there's a problem in a presbytery, they'll com they'll, there'll be a committee to dissuade, and that committee goes to the church and says, well, why are you upset? Well, we're upset about what this guy did and that guy did to us. Well, and then they come back and basically lay out in the open <coughs> basically what are charges of sin against other people in the presbytery. Well, what the committee should say is, well, if you have something against ministers or elders or other churches, what you need to do is file a complaint or bring a charge against them and work that out. That's your Christian duty. Because if you're at the point where you're going to leave and break Christian fellowship over this issue, what's that imply that you need to do? You need to try to work it out and not just leave. That's a general principle in all Christian uh, relationships, whether personal or public, that we need to do what we can to work out the issue. We need to exhaust the processes that are available to us before we just leave. People don't like to do that. Why? Because working out problems is really, really, really hard. It's agonizing. It's difficult. And in God's wisdom, you can see why that's a good thing. We have to be really convinced it's a serious issue if we're going to bring it up, right? So uh, these are not happy times. Thankfully, this provision is not um, needed too often. Okay? But that's what we do if a church wishes to withdraw from the denomination. Any other questions about that? All right, next section, chapter 17, deals with congregations without pastors. Now, uh, again, the principle here is that congregations need pastors. They need them to bring the Word of God, to preach the Word of God to them. While a church can exist without a pastor... Um, it's an abnormal situation. Uh, so congregations without pastors need to continue to meet, right, for the purpose of prayer, singing of praises, the hearing of the word of God. If a minister or a licentiate isn't available to preach, it says that the session shall be responsible for conducting the ser services, and a sermon or exhortation in accord with the standards of the church shall be presented by reading, recording, or oral delivery to the congregation. So when we can't find somebody to fill the pulpit, we have an elder do a reading. We can also play a recording of a sermon. Um, it could be a, a, a video. It could be audio. I've, been at, I've seen churches do that. They can't find a minister, and there's not an elder available to give a good exhortation. Now, again, ordinarily, only the minister, a minister of the word or a licentiate is to preach. Okay? Those ministers in training can also be given opportunity under the supervision of the session to bring the word of God. Uh, but when that is absent, it would then fall to the elders to ensure that uh, the word of God is brought to the people. Now, uh, if a church is without a pastor, there's a way for the presbytery to step in. There's two ways. One is through what we call a ministerial advisor. Right? And the other is through a committee. 
Right? It might depend on the size of the church or the circumstances. But a ministerial advisor is formally appointed to kind of be uh, a helper pastor to the session. So he's not there preaching himself. He's not there doing directly the shepherding work of the congregation unless, of course, say he was without a call and could do that. Ordinarily, he's a pastor of another congregation, so he's working with them. But he steps alongside to advise and to help the ruling elders. So he'll attend session meetings and also assist them uh, in securing pulpit supply for the church. Okay? Now, that could be done by the ministerial advisor, or it might be done by a committee. Now, when it's formally a ministerial advisor, that ministerial advisor does have a vote on the session. Right? So he can vote and have a say in the decisions. If it's a committee, they can't vote. Okay? And there's a good reason for that. Say you have a session of two men, right? And then you get, say, a committee of three ministers. Suddenly, you got more votes in the committee than you do on the session. And so we don't want a group of men from outside a congregation coming in and then lording it over and making all the decisions. It, they still want to honor uh, the integrity and the independence, small i, independence of each uh, local church. Okay, so um, again, that's just a reminder. We're all connected, so each church helps one another. Right now, I serve as the ministerial advisor to the Balfour congregation, 15 minutes away down the road. So I attend monthly session meetings with them. I'm on calls with uh, their elders. Uh, I'm helping them procure, uh, not only to procure pulpit supply, but help them in the calling of a minister that they come. I, I meet regularly uh, with the candidate they're looking at to prepare him for his uh, work shepherding and bringing the word of God in the congregation, but also preparing him for his ordination exams coming up. And uh, although I'm the pastor of this church, at the same time, I, we're a part of the regional church together, and this is a way we help one another, right? The church is without a pastor. They're not left on their own. Uh, sheep without a shepherd uh, need assistance and help. All right, so that's how we deal with uh, congregations without pastors. Now, notice section 3. It says, under ordinary circumstances, only ministers and licentiates of the OPC shall be employed as regular supplies in congregations without pastors. However, other ministers or licentiates may be employed as regular supplies upon approval of the presbytery. So ordinarily, in an OPC church, we want men to fill the pulpit who are ordained and approved by the OPC, because that's with whom we are formally united. But we do acknowledge that there are fraternal denominations that are very close to us, and um, we can invite any minister we want to come and preach to us, say, once, but if he's going to be regularly employed as supply of a pulpit, that has to be approved uh, by the presbytery. Okay, so again, good order. Any questions about that? Congregations without pastors. All right, next two chapters deal with officers of um, the presbytery and the judicatories of the church. And those officers, at, at minimum at least, are two. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But you'll hear these titles thrown around, so it's important that you know what they are. And the two offices okay, are moderator and clerk. Now, what do they do? Well, the moderator is chosen as a presiding officer so that the business may be conducted with order and dispatch. In other words, the moderator is there to make sure things are done in the proper process and also quickly. <laughs> okay. Those of you who are moderators and listening, listening to this, that means we should aim for the shortest possible meetings. <laughs> meetings that go on forever and ever and ever in which there's endless discussion become tedious and difficult and weigh everybody down. And we need to have somebody direct the ship so that Things are done in proper process. Now, the moderator needs to be careful to let everybody speak and not be too heavy-handed in that. But at the same time, sometimes moderators have to speed the meeting along. And I always love it at General Assembly because the moderator of General Assembly has a tall order on their hands. right? Because we'll be debating something for a couple hours. And eventually, the moderator always, every year, says something like, well, men, I'm hearing a lot of the same arguments repeated, just with different voices. Maybe it's time now for us to vote. And he'll say, I'm going to put the question as to whether we're going to vote in favor or against. 
And inevitably, once he does that, somebody else steps up. Mr. Moderator, I have something I want to say. All right, so there's a little bit of a tug of war there in terms of allowing everybody to speak, but also moving the meeting along. One principle I think is important to remember is that in these kinds of meetings, formal meetings, the general idea is we're listening to arguments, not people. So if somebody gets up and makes a point, you don't have to repeat that point. Right? Sometimes people feel like they need to get up and make the point because they want to voice the fact that there are more people that agree with that person. You can understand why that would be desirable. Well, and that's fine if you feel like you have to get up, but it should be an additional point that adds to what was said before. Right? If you're just repeating the same arguments for or against the motion that other people have made, it just is redundant, and it, it just it takes up time. So the moderator's there to make sure everything's uh, done in order. And the moderator, it says, is to be considered as possessing by delegation from the whole body all authority necessary for the preservation of order, for convening and adjourning the judicatory, and directing its operations according to the rules of the church. So that's, that's a powerful position, right? Now, he doesn't have decision, he doesn't have power to make decisions, right? He's not a judicial commission or on his own. But as far as the order and process is concerned, he's delegated with authority to preserve the order. He's got to make rulings as to whether a speech is in order or out of order or whether the proper process is being followed. Now, if he makes a ruling and people in the body disagree with it, they have something they can do. They can challenge the ruling of the chair. And that happens sometimes because moderators sometimes make mistakes. And someone will get up and say, I challenge the ruling of the chair. And right at that moment, the whole body takes a vote as to whether the moderator was right or wrong about the decision. Okay? And uh, I love the OPC because when that happens and the moderator is voted down, a lot of times it was just a, a silly mistake that slipped his mind. You know? It's a humbling thing for the moderator. You're like, okay, I guess I got that one wrong, right? But the authority he has <coughs> is not absolute but subject to um, the evaluation of the whole body because it's ultimately a delegated authority. All right, so that's, um, uh, that's a moderator. Well, what about a clerk? A clerk is somebody who keeps the records of the meeting. So they keep the minutes, they record it carefully, and uh, they keep track of them. They grant extracts from the minutes, and um, they are to, con and, and any extracts given of the meeting from the clerk is considered authentic vouchers of the facts which we declare. So in other words, if we're looking for the official record of what happened in the meeting, it comes from the clerk. Right. So you can go ask presbyters, hey, what happened at the meeting? And they might tell you, well, this is what happened at the meeting. Well, that's helpful to know their perspective. But if you want the official record of what happened that counts in the order of the church at a higher judicatory, you got to get it from the clerk. So uh, we can get into minutes and what are included in minutes. Typically, minutes only include formal decisions of the body, right? They might note that certain discussions had taken place, that certain things had happened, but good minutes are not full transcripts of everything that happened in a meeting. Okay, it's not, you don't have to take a transcript of every debate. The important thing to conclude include are the decisions and the matters that were discussed. So it's a balancing act, right? You want to give enough detail so that people know what happened, but not so much that it becomes you know, a historical transcript. All right, so those are moderators and clerks, and we have those on the session. A moderator and a clerk, we have those at the presbytery, and then, of course, we have them at the general assembly. We have a stated clerk and a moderator. The stated clerk typically serves uh, consecutive years just because it's a job that makes sense that over the years you have the same person keeping track of it, so you have consistency. The moderator is elected um, newly every year. Okay. All right, any questions about moderators and clerks? Great. All right, well, then the next section of the church order deals with uh, calling and ordaining uh, pastors. Uh, so uh, if we go to chapter 20, uh, it deals with the topics of ordination and installation. Now, these apply not just to ministers, but to all officers. Right? Um, and what it recognizes is that no man can take these offices to himself. 
Even Jesus, as the book of Hebrews says, didn't take the office of high priest upon himself, but he waited until he was called by God, right? And in the case of ordinary officers, they have to have an internal calling from God and desire to serve. But in addition to that internal calling, there is an external calling by which they are ratified for the work by the church. Right? And if we turn to the pastoral epistles, give me one second here, we see this, uh, we see this distinction made. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, it says this, this the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires or desires the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. All right, that desire to be an elder, right, that aspiration is something that's noble and good. But by itself, that's not sufficient to make you a pastor or a missionary or an elder or a deacon. What else do you need? You need the external call, which ratifies that desire from the church and says, yeah, you're fit. And where do we read about that? Well, in 1 Timothy 3, verse 10, it speaks of deacons that they must first be tested. Okay. Now, what's that mean? In other words, they have to have a proven track record of faithfulness and leadership such that they manifest not only that they possess the gifts, but that they can also use them effectively and in a mature way. Right? So there's the internal call that we feel and our desire to serve, but then there's the external call. Right? The church has the duty to set men apart for these solemn acts of service. Right? And after being tested and trained, the first thing that would happen is what we call ordination. What's ordination? Ordination is that act by which men are set apart to the offices of deacon, ruling elder, and minister. It's where you're set apart to the task, and it is the church's solemn approval of and public attestation to a man's inward call, his gifts, and calling by the church. So when a man is ordained, he receives the office. That is now upon him. The church is ratified. Yes, this man has the gifts. We have voted and we have proved. And now through the laying on the hands, we symbolically show the sharing of joint authority and a joint call to serve the church in the name of Jesus Christ. Right? And that uh, investiture with office through ordination should only happen when his gifts and his call uh, are appropriate to the office um, and he's completed uh, completed that uh, task. So it requires training and testing that is necessary for the proper performance of the duties required by the office. All right, so that's ordination. Now, ordination of deacons and elders takes place in a local church by the session. Right? Ordination of ministers takes place in the presbytery. So there's that difference according to the nature of their work and the bodies in which they have membership. Elders and deacons have memberships in a local church. Uh, ministers have membership in a regional church uh, or presbytery. All right, well, what about installation? Well, this is a second thing that goes alongside it. And the installation of an officer, again, the, ord the ordination is that act by which they're set apart and given the office. Okay. Installation is the act by which a person who has been chosen to perform official work in the church is placed in position to do that work. Okay, why is this distinction necessary? Well, it's necessary for pastors because while when they're first ordained, they need to be ordained to a particular call, sometimes they might leave that call. And if they leave that call, they remain a minister while they search for or wait for another call. So the office itself is distinct from the place in which it functions and is performed. Same thing is true for elders and deacons. 
Um, not all churches, but our uh, church practices term eldership and term deaconship. Basically, that means you're elected and installed for a term of service, three years or maybe less if you're filling um, another spot or if um, we specify it differently. But ordinarily, it's three years. Now, if you decide at the end of the three years to say, well, my term's up, I need a break, you rotate off the session or the diaconate, but you still retain the office of deacon and elder. And the session might call upon you to help for particular tasks and duties, right? Let's say, for example, there's a very experienced elder, um, and the session feels like, you know what, there's a marriage situation, and I think he could provide really good counsel. But hey, he's not serving on the session because he rotated off. Well, the session might come to him and say, hey, you know, we need your help. We're kind of overwhelmed. There's a lot going on right now. Can you step up and help us with this particular task? Yeah, great. So he's still an elder, and he can do elder functions. Likewise, deacons, if they're not serving, if they're not installed to a term of service, they can still perform deacon functions at the request of the session. Okay? So installation is putting that person in the place to perform the work. right? And so we keep those things um, distinct. Ordination and installation. All right. Um, last section here uh, deals with what we call the status of emeritus. Okay, as long as you have the office, you do have an obligation upon you to perform the duties of that office. Okay? So you might need a break. You might rotate off, right? But in the way God allows you at the time, there's still an obligation for you to serve. Right? It's an abnormal situation for somebody to have an office but not be serving in some way in that office. Well, if an officer, by reason of advanced age or disabilities, retires or is retired from a position and is no longer engaged in a service that requires a call, the body calling him to that service in which he was last engaged before his retirement may, in recognition of his long and or meritorious service, designate him emeritus with the title of his previous service. So, for example, Ralph Van Winkle, who served as an elder for a long, long time because of a number of health problems that both he and his wife were having, got to the point where he said, I need to retire. So he has the status of elder emeritus. Ministers, too, who reach the point where they're no longer going to be actively serving in a pastoral charge or in some other form of full-time service, they might be granted the status of emeritus. Okay? And it's a way to honor them and kind of free them, as it were, from the obligations imposed upon them by the office. We're basically saying, look, you're retired now. You're at the point where you need to, I don't want to say relax, but you don't need to feel the obligation to full-time service, take care of yourself and your wife or your family, um, and you continue to serve as you can, but it lessens that sense of urgency that's upon them uh, to serve in the church. Any questions about... Any of that. All right, next section, 21, really gets into the process here in terms of how a pastor is trained, tested, and then called. Okay, so we're zooming in here, particularly on pastors and this whole process involved with them. Now, there's a lot here. I'm going to try to walk you through it and just highlight the key points uh, and the high points. All right. All right, so the first step in this process is what we call coming under care. What's that mean? Well, if you go to section two, it tells us there that prior to licensure, we'll get to that in a minute, candidates for being a pastor shall be taken under the care of a presbytery. So essentially, while maybe they're just starting seminary or thinking about going to seminary, what happens is a local church writes to the presbytery and says, hey, we've got this young man, and he really shows gifts and godliness and aptitude to serve as a pastor. We see it in him already. And we're encouraging him to go to seminary and get the necessary training. And so we would ask that you place him under care in which the presbytery, in our case, through a committee, we call it candidates and credentials, and I serve on that committee, oversees and cares for 
these men while they're being trained. Okay. Now, the way we do things and the way where places seminaries are located, there's there's no not really many seminaries in our area, right? So we end up sending men say to Michigan or Indiana or Philadelphia or southern US or California. And so it can be difficult, right, to provide direct care, but nevertheless, periodically we check in on them, we see how they're doing. Um, I particularly uh, take that obligation seriously. Um, thankfully, through technology, I'm able to meet virtually with many of these men to offer help to them. In particular, I try to help them in their preaching and encourage them in how to develop their gifts, uh, their gifts with that. So the first thing is they need to come under care of presbytery. But, well, why is that? Well, again, just a step back for a minute. The, the, a pastor requires training. And not just on his own, with the oversight of the whole church. We believe in what we call an educated ministry. Now, some churches don't really see it that way, right? They basically say, look, the Spirit is the one who works, and, you know, the apostles were all a bunch of dumb fishermen, and he let his wisdom go through them. So we don't need seminary. We don't need training. We don't need education. If somebody has a spirit in them, let them loose and let them go preach. Right? And you see places like that. And you see self-made ministries where basically people decide on their own, hey, I'm going to go preach. And often these people are very charismatic. Uh, they're also often very intelligent. And those men are the most dangerous <laughs> because they're persuasive. Right? And we need to go through this process of training and education because the central thing that's necessary for an effective minister and preacher of the gospel in terms of uh, character is humility. It's humility. Why? Well, because as a preacher of the word of God, you are a minister of the word of God. What's another word for minister? Servant. You're a servant of the word. It's not your ideas. It's God's ideas, right? Um, I remember when Judge Neil, or Justice Neil Gorsuch was up for um, examination, he made a point before the Senate to say, I am a servant of the Constitution. My job is not to tell you what I think law should be. It is simply to say this, right, in terms of the natural, textual, original sense of the term, this is what our Constitution says. And there may be times when I don't like that. I wish it were different, but I'm a servant of the Constitution. A minister is a servant of the Word of God, and he's not alone in that. He shares that task not only with the other pastors, but under the oversight of the other elders that help guide and direct him. Right? So it's very, very important that, and this goes for elders and deacons and pastors, right, that we take seriously that the ministry we perform, we do in the context of submission to one another in the Lord. And if you go through a process of training where you're taught by other men who are gifted, that it can evaluate you, that it can encourage you, and that's part of your whole process, by the time you're done, guess what you've learned? That you're not right about everything. And even if you are right, sometimes it's better to submit your own private opinion to the rest for the good of the church. Right? Now, if it's not a matter of your private opinion, it's a matter of what God says, well, then you've got to boldly take a stand, right? But the problem is, if you don't have humility, what happens is, every situation where you think you're right, you think you have to boldly take a stand. Well, it takes humility to recognize when are those times I need to boldly take a stand and what are the times that in love I have to work with the consensus of a group. And if we don't have humility, what happens is everything becomes the same level of absolute authority. Right? So again, this whole process isn't just a formal thing. It is to develop and engender in the minister that the fact that they are a minister. Right? Likewise, the Holy Scriptures, as we've seen, tells us that those who are to be ordained to the ministry of the gospel, they need to be gifted, they need to be tested, and they need to be trained. And we degrade the ministry of the word when we entrust it to weak, 
or unworthy men. And since also the church is the one that votes upon whether they want to call a person as the pastor, there needs to be a process of testing in place by which they can form a judgment as to whether they can be effective in their work. And so that starts with this process of having them come under care. Now, when they come under care, they come to be interviewed by the presbytery. And essentially what we ask them is, we ask them questions related to their desire. Why do you want to serve in this office? And then also with respect to their uh, godliness and um, the current practices in their life and their family and in their worship in the church that can assure us that they sincerely pursue the office. Yes, there are those that pursue offices (laughs) not to serve others, but to serve self. Many people look at offices, political office, church office, as a way to advance their own reputation, to put a feather in their hat. Look at how smart I am. I was able to become a pastor. Look at how gifted I am. I was able to become a senator. That's somebody pursuing the office for their own sake and not for the sake of others. Now, the wonderful thing is, to the degree that we may have those bad desires in us, okay, even mixed in us, uh, serving in church office has a way of quickly burning that out of you. <laughs> okay? If, you're, if you view office as this kind of position of status and power, okay, and if God's present in the church, you're going to have a rude awakening. <laughs> Far from being a status of uh, power... Uh, it becomes that which weighs weighty obligations on you. And if it is a humble man, he's going to look at his office, not the reason why um, you know, he's the greatest thing since sliced bread and everything should listen to him. It, it should fill him with a sense of, oh my goodness, I am weak and unable to do this. Our reaction should be that of Moses in a lot of ways, right? What did Moses say to God? Speak to the people of Israel. What's Moses say? The meekest man who ever lived. Uh, no, God, I think you got the wrong guy. My brother Aaron over there, he's a great speaker. He's good. I argued with him, you know, when I was growing up, and he always won every argument. So go get Aaron. He's a better guy than I am, right? Now, of course, that was partly Moses' unfaithfulness because God had clearly told him, you're the man, right? But the meekness of Moses was manifest even in his responsibility to the call. When we truly understand the responsibilities that are on us, As far as our flesh is concerned, we say with Jesus, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Look, even Jesus prayed that, overwhelmed by what he had to endure in his office as Savior, right? So this process ensures that from the outset, the church is involved in overseeing and um, testing him, okay? So that's the first step. Church writes a letter to the presbytery, and the man uh, comes under care. Right. It goes on in section three that it's this is strong language. It's highly reproachful to religion and dangerous to the church to entrust the preaching of the gospel to weak and ignorant men. And so, therefore, the presbytery shall license a candidate only if he has received a bachelor of arts degree or its academic equivalent from a college or university of reputable academic standing and has completed an adequate course of study lasting at least one year and a half in a theological seminary. So the next step in the process is what we call licensure. Now, the final step, just to jump ahead, is ordination, where he actually becomes an ordained pastor. The licensure is still a situation which we call probation or probationary. Okay, It's not the probation of the covenant of works in the garden (laughs) in which perfection is required. It's a testing, and you're basically asking this question. Does this man have the gifts to serve, and can he do that in ways that are edifying to God's people? Right? Now, that might look different with different men. Some men excel in certain gifts. Some men excel in other gifts. Some men are missionaries. Some men are going to work as pastors in local churches. Some men are evangelists. Some men are more teachers, right, when we've covered all these different ways that they can serve. But insofar as it's, there's an idea of how they're going to serve, they're being tested, Do they have the gifts to preach God's word? And do they edify people as they do that? That's the question that uh, the church is asking. And bare minimum here, we're saying that this cannot happen until there's a bachelor's degree or the equivalent and at least 1.5 years of seminary. 
Why is that? Well, because we believe in what we call the pastor-scholar. Okay. A pastor, his main job is to preach God's Word. In order to do that effectively, he's got to be able to study. He's got to be able to know his stuff. He's got to be able to have a mind that shows aptitude to processing theology, thoughts, ideas, to be able to discern systems of truth, right? Now, that alone doesn't make a pastor, right? But that's necessary there. Okay, some people say, well, he can just learn that on the job. Really? You know, the older I get, the more kids I have, the more I'm thankful for my time in seminary. Because I don't have time to learn on the job, right? Now, I'm not saying I don't, I mean, I study, right? But the idea of trying to do what was my seminary education while I'm pastoring a church, that just sounds nuts to me, right? I drown. There's no way you can do it, right? So um, we believe in an educated ministry. And so, therefore, we look for a bachelor's degree or the equivalent, okay, if there's some other form of education that they took, as, as well as 1.5 years of seminary, so that they at least have the foundations of Christian doctrine, uh, Christian practice, biblical studies, and some preaching training involved. So this is kind of a halfway point in the process. right? And so once that's been satisfied, they have a degree, and they've been in a theological seminary, then they're examined by the presbytery. And notice what they're examined in. Okay? English Bible, ecclesiastical history, theology, and the original languages of the scriptures. Those are the exams that they take um, for their licensure. And they have to satisfy that. And they're written exams. So what happens is the candidate is given an exam from the presbytery, and we have all these tests written. The exam is proctored. In other words, somebody oversees them. And then they submit their exam to the committee. And then the committee reads it. And again, I'm on this committee, and, and we read it together, and then we talk about it. Okay, how did this person do? Right? And really, what we're, we're, we're not, we don't grade it A, B, C, D, F, but we're basically saying, is this sufficient for licensure? Right? Now, there's another set of exams at ordination. The bar for that is higher. We expect a little more detail, and there's less margin for error. But we're essentially asking, is this person, do they show knowledge of Christian doctrine, ecclesiastical history, original languages, to be able to work with the scripture and bring forth the truth of it to the people in sermons? Okay? Right. If that's the case, the committee then recommends to the presbytery that he stands for licensure. Right. Now, after that, there's an exam done, not just by the committee, but by the whole presbytery, in theology. Now, this is very significant. We entrust part of the testing to a committee that's entrusted with that task on behalf of the whole presbytery, but the theology exam is done by everybody. Now, why do you think that's significant and important? Well, what's it say about the importance of theology in our denomination? It's important, right? And it's important not only in itself, but it's important that everybody get the chance to listen to this man explain his views. Okay? That needs to be done by as many people as possible, and for good reason. Okay? Um, if a committee did that work by itself, it's not bad. I mean, we, we, we seek to trust members of committees, but if it's all out in the open and everybody's had the chance to ask this man about his views, and he's approved, well, then he's accepted as a brother. There's no, there's no skepticism or doubt or doubt about him. Or if there is a view he might have that people might disagree on, they've had the chance uh, to talk about it. All right, so he's examined in the committee in those uh, different exams. And then, of course, he's examined um, in theology. And then he also has to give a sermon or a devotional message to the whole presbytery. He submits written or recorded sermons to the committee that has to approve them, whether he's doing that effectively. And then he has to give a message to the whole presbytery. Now, our expectation is that when a candidate comes for licensure, it's not going to be the greatest sermon we've ever heard, right? Preaching is a craft that takes years to perfect. It takes years to get there, okay? And some men catch on more quickly than others, right? But we're still looking for 
Can this person, can this man bring forth God's word clearly and in an edifying way to the people, right? So that's, the, that's essentially the licensure process. Um, I should add to this that once the vote is taken, what do you think the margin is that's required for him to pass? Two-thirds. Okay, that's, that's a good guess, but it's, it's not. 75%. 75%. If one-fourth of the presbyters are not satisfied, what do you do? Well, you tell the guy, look, we appreciate your efforts, but he didn't pass. Come back next time, right? and we'll bring some cookies for you, and we'll test you again. Now, in the old days of the OPC, I've been told that nobody passed their first time. And I don't know exactly why that is, but I think it kind of became just a tradition, you know. And it might, might have been one of those things where, you know, the ministers were like, well, I didn't pass my first time, so you're not either. I don't know what it is about that kind of thing, but I've had professors, I had professors in college like that, you know. They'd say to me, when I was in college, the professor only gave one A, and I never got it. So you're only getting one A. And I'm like, okay, I'm Maybe you need to go see a therapist or something. I mean, come on, you know, channeling your frustration back at me. Well, nevertheless, whatever you can say for it, it does show how seriously they took this, right? They weren't afraid to tell a guy, look, you're not ready. And the bar is still pretty high. I mean, we expect candidates to be able to know their stuff. And we have at times turned guys back and said, look, you're not, you're not quite ready. You need to do a better exam, right? I will say that once in a while, you run into some difficulty with that. People get mad. How could you vote no? Look at this guy. He loves the Lord. He's great. And sometimes when I vote no, I'm like, I agree with you. Well, he's going to get better. I'm like, I agree with you. He will get better. But let's let him get better and then approve him. Not preemptively. And why is that? Well, because we want to make sure a guy knows his stuff, but also that he can articulate himself on the fly under pressure. That's part of the process, too. Because ministers have to speak God's word sometimes on the fly under pressure. Right? That's the level of qualification um, that we want. Again, not every man is going to be the same. Some men can kind of just get up and talk and teach, and they don't even need notes. Other guys need a guideline. They're not as quick on their feet. That's okay. Everybody has different gifts. Yeah. How quickly can that guy come back for a second exam? Uh, well, in our presbytery, it would be the next stated meeting. So, if, say he was examined in September, he'd come back in April, or April to September. Yeah. And again, 75%. So, you know, in a presbytery, if there's 40 men there, you can do the quick math. You know, it's, uh, what are they, eight? what's that? Yeah, so 10 people who say, uh-uh, it's not good enough. So, so it's a high bar. Uh, and so I think it's important to remember that if you have a licentiate, somebody's been licensed, um, there's two things you have to remember. One is they've passed a pretty high bar <laughs> to be in the position they're in, but at the same time, they're still under probation. They're still being tested and examined and proven, right? So there's a level of respect that you, they, they have, and, and uh, there's, there's an assumption of charity that's given to them, while at the same time you're evaluating whether they are ready to go to that next step and be ordained, okay? All right, so um, that's uh, licensure. Um, and when he's licensed uh, and after um, he submits all his papers, there's some papers and some other things there, but I won't get into the detail about that. Then once he's licensed and the uh, presbytery uh, votes for him, he's then presented uh, his questions and those are listed under Section 7, which have to do with his belief in the Scriptures, his adopting the confession of faith in catechisms, his promise to seek the purity, peace, and unity of the church, and to submit himself to the government of the presbytery. Right. Now, um, we're almost out of time, but I'll just conclude here under this by addressing this question. What's it mean when he adopts the system of doctrine contained in the, in the Scriptures? Right. What's that mean? Well, it doesn't mean um, that the confession equals Scripture because we acknowledge that 
scriptures written by God and the confessions written by men. Right? So it's not the words themselves. But we are saying that the substance of the truth that the confession articulates is biblical and scriptural. And therefore, he's committed to it. Right? So it's not to the level of placing it equal to scripture. We don't believe that. But we do believe that it expresses in human words the infallible truth of scripture. Now, some people take issue with that. Say, how can you say that the confession teaches the infallible truth of Scripture? Well, think about this. What's the alternative? If we cannot, in human words, communicate with certainty what God's Word says, what are we left with? Nothing. Nothing. We're left with skepticism, aren't we? Right, so there are those that reject the idea of confessions and say we shouldn't have ministers subscribe to confessions. But the problem with that is it implies a skepticism about knowledge. Right? So we recognize that our words are not infallible. But we believe God has spoken clearly in his word in the things necessary to be believed and known for salvation. So if you don't allow or don't think it's okay for a minister to subscribe to a confession... Again, this is just in a nutshell. I want you to ask, what's your epistemology? Are you left with skepticism? Uh, and by the way, um, I did a lot of research on this point. Uh, if anybody's interested, um, there was an issue in South Carolina in early uh, American Presbyterianism in which um, this issue came up, and this was the argument. Um, and likewise, there's another issue here over... and. I wrote an article on this. I don't, I don't like advertising myself too much, but I'll do it here. So, um, There's a fellow named John Thompson, no P, and he wrote uh, an article, uh, wrote, wrote a pamphlet back in the 1700s that addresses this issue here, subscribing to the, the confession. So those are uh, helpful resources, but probably too deep of a dive for you. So. Anyway, we're out of time, so we'll pick up next time where we left off. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your church. We thank you especially for men that desire to serve in the offices and the clear order that's put in place by which they may be tested and tried. And we do pray for these men, many of whom are in our presbytery, who are under care, who are licensed. We ask that you'd work in their hearts, make them good servants of Jesus Christ, rightly dividing the word of truth. Bring them to churches where they may be ordained and installed and serve you and God's people by bringing the word. We pray especially for the church in Bothell and Sean, their candidate. We pray that you would open doors, that he may come and serve them, and that your church may be built up in the word of God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.